This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Support Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 127th edition of the program. Today is January 18th, and before we get into the news, as usual, I want to take a moment to thank each and every single one of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors this week. So we have Chris Johnson, Christopher Andalin, Claudia M. Cruz, Clayton Berger, Daniel Kohler, Mark Russo, Michael Miller, Noah B.E. Church, Oliver Foster, Robert Siders, Thomas Hendrickson. So all of these people either donated to us via PayPal or signed up to contribute to us monthly, either through Patreon or PayPal. So if you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash support. So on today's episode, Joe Biden bashed millennials. So we'll talk about his 2020 strategy, generally speaking, and why this is a horrible idea. Joe Arpaio still doesn't know why he's running for the United States Senate. Chelsea Manning announces her run for the Senate, and she's already inadvertently proving that neoliberals are in fact hypocritical. We'll talk about a viral video that demonstrates exactly why we need Medicare for all. The Dakota Access Pipeline has already had five spills in just six months. The Senate needs just one more vote to pass a bill that would nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. Tom Perez admits that reforming the DNC is a lot more difficult than he initially thought it would be. And a journalist bashed Bernie Sanders for not compromising with Donald Trump and the Republicans. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Millennials, people in my generation, around my age range, are generally worse off than previous generations in a multitude of ways. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. First of all, we're inheriting a rigged economy that disproportionately benefits elites and the rich. We are also inheriting a dying planet that we have to be the ones to save if we even want to have a future at all. And when I talk about these things, when I talk about the economic woes that plague the millennial generation, I'm not just being hyperbolic because the Young Invincibles, which is a DC-based think tank, actually crunched the numbers and found that millennials earn approximately $10,000 less annually than baby boomers, which is a 20% change overall. Now, additionally, Young Invincibles also found that declines in education levels have changed so drastically between now and then that, quote, young people today that have a degree with debt earn roughly the same as young workers with no degree in the late 1980s. And that's problematic, but it's not just that our degrees are worth less today than they were back then. But additionally, as Cheat Sheet explains, on average, millennials pay 150% more in tuition than baby boomers. So we pay more for our degrees that are worth less. And it's not just education. The average cost of weddings went up by 24%. The cost to purchase a home increased by 294%. And the cost of food has also increased substantially even when accounting for inflation. 
Also, contrary to popular belief, millennials are not lazy. We are now the largest generation in the U.S. labor force, and productivity continues to increase even though we have a very large presence. However, wages have not kept up with productivity, meaning we're working harder for lower wages, generally speaking, and prices keep increasing. So, our generation undoubtedly has it harder than previous generations. That's not to say that different generations didn't have other problems that were pretty prevalent, but our generation, economically at least, is much worse off, and the future doesn't look very bright for a lot of us. However, when we complain about these things, we're often labeled as entitled millennials who want it all. We're called lazy, and the reason why, you know, we aren't making as much money as our parents is because we just don't want to work very hard. And a lot of people seem to have this anti-millennial rhetoric, and they blame us for everything. I mean, look at all of the anti-millennial articles that are constantly being written. I mean, it just goes to show overall that older generations hate millennials, even if it's the case that, you know, <laughs> we're not responsible for the current situation. We're just now entering it. Now, one individual in particular who, interestingly enough, seems to have the same type of anti-millennial stance is former Vice President Joe Biden. And he actually has some really harsh words for millennials who dared to speak out about our current situation. And before I tell you what he said, let me just remind you that this is an individual that is presumably going to be running for president in 2020. So if there's any generation he needs to guarantee a win, it's gonna be us. So keep that in mind and <laughs> listen to what he has to say about our generation. I only had two political heroes in my whole life. And this is not new, I've been said this since 1972. Dr. King and Robert Kennedy. And up to that point, there was a war raging, there was a, a bitter fight over even whether we should talk about the environment. Women were still viewed as second-class citizens and not prepared to have significant jobs, uh, thought that. And uh, we were told uh, the people didn't talk to one another over the war. And uh, we were told, drop out, go out to hate Asbury, uh, get engaged. Now, you know, shortly after I graduated in 68, uh, Kent State, 17 kids shot dead. And so the younger generation now tells me how tough things are. Give me a break. <laughs> no, no. I have no empathy for it. Give me a break. Because here's the deal, guys. We decided we were going to change the world. And we did. We did. We finished the civil rights movement to the first stage. The women's movement came to the beam. So my message is, get involved. There's no place to hide. You can go out and you can make all the money in the world, but you can't build a wall high enough to keep the pollution out. You can't live where you're in a, you, you, you can't not be diminished when your sister can't marry the man or woman or the woman she, she loves. You can't, when you have a good friend being profiled, you can't escape this stuff. So if that doesn't tell you that Joe Biden is out of touch, I don't think anything will. I mean, let's go back to the quotes here. The younger generation now tells me how tough they, things are. Give me a break. I have no empathy. Give me a break. Because here's the deal, guys. We decided we were going to change the world, and we did. My message is get involved. Now, I don't even know where to begin. First and foremost, what did you do specifically, Joe Biden? Were you out there fighting for civil rights? Because I remember Bernie Sanders fighting for civil rights and being arrested because he was leading a march to desegregate the University of Chicago. But for some reason, I don't see any pictures of you 
protesting when you were younger, Joe. So how involved were you exactly? Now, second of all, we can't ignore the conservative undertones there because basically the implication is that, well, if your situation is tough, then pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like a conservative type of philosophy. It really puts the individual at the center of one's economic issues. So that way, if there are economic problems, if the aggregate economy isn't functioning for normal Americans, well, that's not necessarily the economy's fault and, you know, Congress's fault. That's your fault for not doing enough to pull yourself out of this difficult situation. That's the implication. And Joe Biden specifically really has a lot of nerve saying this when he personally is responsible for worsening our situation. So he actually helped to exacerbate the student debt crisis at the behest of his donors, the big banks. Now, as journalist David Sirota explained in an interview with Amy Goodman for Democracy Now!, quote, there was a push in the 1970s to say that students would have to wait five years from graduating to be able to seek bankruptcy protections for their government loans. That was a bill that Joe Biden helped craft. He was on the conference committee. There was a series of other bills through the 1980s and into the 1990s in which Joe Biden worked on the same set of issues, lengthening the amount of time students would have to wait to be able to access bankruptcy protections for educational debt. And then into the late 1990s, 90s and 2000s, there was this push by Biden. He was a key Democrat pushing the bankruptcy bill that was ultimately signed by President George W. Bush that eliminated the ability of most Americans to seek bankruptcy protections, not only for their government loans, but also for their private student loans. So that was a big, a big objective of the private lenders. At the time, over his career, Joe Biden has raised about $2 million from the financial sector while he's been sculpting these bills. So here he is hypocritically blaming us for our situation, blaming us for not buying cars or houses, blaming us for complaining about our student debt situation when he helped make this situation worse for us. So he's telling us to stop whining. He has no empathy for us because if we're tired of this political situation, then we need to get involved and change it. Yet he crafted the situation in this country that has made it so bad for millennials to begin with. And furthermore, he's telling us that getting involved would presumably help us improve our own situation. But what was it again that his party did in 2016 when millennials came out in droves to vote for Bernie Sanders? He sat by and was silent as his party, the DNC, brazenly rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders, the candidate that millennials overwhelmingly supported. And guess what? If you hadn't have done that, Bernie Sanders very well could have won, and we would now have a President Bernie Sanders, not a President Donald Trump. So we tried to make our voices clear, and we were silenced by the DNC, yet neoliberals and centrist Democrats still blamed us because we didn't come out and vote. I bet more people would come out and vote if they actually felt like the process was fair to begin with. But the question is, what is Joe Biden doing now? Because he did all of that in the past. He pushed for the bankruptcy bill in the past. But what is he currently doing to rectify the situation and make millennials feel better about the economy and the Democratic Party in general? Well, he's now positioning himself as the anti-Bernie of 2020. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. And of course, additionally, he's saying things like this about millennials. I have no empathy for it. Give me a break. So in the end, I, I don't even know what to say about this. <laughs> Joe Biden is doing the exact opposite 
of what he should be doing. He's showing that he is less politically astute than Hillary Clinton, because even though Hillary Clinton had no clue how to run even a moderately competent campaign, she at least knew that she had to get millennials to support her if she wanted to win. Joe Biden is showing, you know, I don't really care about millennials. It seems like, you know, they just need to stop crying and um, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and then things will be better for them. I know that he thinks that we're going to hear him say that and be like, oh, thank you. I guess it just needed, we just needed someone to give us a kick in the ass to get us going and to stop complaining and to actually do something. But that's not the way that this works, Joe. You are fundamentally misunderstanding the situation. You're ignoring the part you played that got us to this current economic situation to begin with. So... I don't even understand what Joe Biden was thinking to say something like this, to blast millennials as he's about to announce his presidential campaign in about a year. I mean, what gives, Joe? I mean, this shows that he's completely out of touch with our generation and Americans in general, because it's not just millennials who are struggling. It's the working class in general of all generations, and that's what's important. So I don't necessarily want to imply that millennials are more important and that I care more about my generation than other generations, I think that together we need to cultivate this class consciousness that's been missing in this country and realize that the working class is getting screwed over by people like Joe Biden. Chelsea Manning is an individual that showed a tremendous amount of courage by exposing war crimes that our government was committing abroad. Now, she's someone that I absolutely look up to because to expose the government like that, the most powerful country in the world, I mean, I can't even fathom the amount of bravery that takes. I don't know that I would be as courageous, but Chelsea Manning thought that the truth was more important than her own life. So obviously what she did is commendable and she's deciding to continue fighting for the American people and she is running for the United States Senate. I'm Chelsea Manning and I approve this message. We live in trying times. Times of fear. Of suppression. Of hate. We don't need more or better leaders. We need someone willing to fight. We need to stop asking them to give us our rights. They won't support us. They won't compromise. We need to stop expecting that our systems will somehow fix themselves. We need to actually take the reins of power from them. We need to challenge them at every level. We need to fix this. We don't need them anymore. We can do better. You're damn right we got this. So this is incredibly exciting, and I, I definitely look forward to hearing about her policy positions. I mean, everything is new, so I hope that she um, releases a platform soon, and I hope that she runs on a very progressive campaign, um, or runs a very progressive campaign, but from the looks of it, I mean, it seems great. She's already endorsing the idea of universal basic income. So if she were in the United States Senate, that would be huge. So needless to say, I'm excited about her campaign. However, the response to Chelsea Manning's announcement was incredibly 
troubling. Um, Chelsea Manning now wants to run for U.S. Senate. So I think this is just great. We've got Joe Arpaio running for the Senate on the right. We've got Chelsea Manning running for the Senate on the left. Chelsea Manning, of course, is a traitor, is an actual traitor who served time in prison for revealing classified documents that put American lives in danger and then got out because Chelsea Manning is transgender and obviously all transgender people are heroes. Chelsea Manning deserved to be released from prison, not because Chelsea Manning wasn't guilty of, tra of treason, but because Chelsea Manning uh, thinks that Chelsea Manning is a woman and it's very important to the press that we all agree. So, I mean, clearly there's a significant portion of the population in America that drunk the government's Kool-Aid. They willingly accept that when a whistleblower exposes our own government's crimes, it's not the government that should be held accountable, but the person that exposed the crimes in the first place. And if you're thinking that it's just conservatives with this mentality that mocked and smeared Chelsea Manning, You'd be mistaken because there were a lot of neoliberal and centrist Democrats that not only scoffed at the idea of Chelsea Manning running for the United States Senate, but they literally insinuated that she was a Russian puppet. Not even kidding about that. So we're going to turn to an article written by Glenn Greenwald for The Intercept. And at first, you may be taken aback by the language he's using because he invokes identity politics quite a bit. But towards the end of the article, it's going to make sense as to why he's doing this. It's to really expose the amount of hypocrisy that the Democratic Party establishment exhibited in the past. So he argues, over the weekend, Chelsea Manning announced her candidacy for the U.S. Senate by posting a video outlining the broad themes of her campaign. Manning, a whistleblower who served seven years in the U.S. military brig for exposing systemic U.S. war crimes, was held under prison conditions so brutal that the U.N. formally denounced them as inhumane. While her whistleblowing made her a hero around the world, Manning has also now become an icon of LGBT equality and trans rights with an act of profound bravery that at least matches, if not surpasses, her whistleblowing. She announced her transition and demanded the dignity and treatment to which she was entitled while she was imprisoned in the middle of a sprawling U.S. military base in a brig at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Since her release from prison, she has become a visible and outspoken advocate for the rights of trans people. She has used her position as a Guardian columnist to stake out a wide range of positions, including drafting a proposed law to provide protections for whistleblowers. She certainly has more political experience and activism than many other Senate candidates previously supported by the Democratic establishment. Al Franken comes to mind as one example. If elected, Manning would become the first trans woman ever and the youngest woman ever to serve in the U.S. Senate. Manning's opponent in the Democratic Party primary is one of the most standard, banal, typical, privileged, and mediocre politicians in the U.S. Congress, Benjamin Cardin, a 74-year-old white straight man who is seeking his third six-year Senate term. Cardin's decades-long career as a politician from the start has been steeped in unearned privilege. He first won elective office back in 1966 when his uncle, Maurice Cardin, gave up his seat in order to bequeath it to his nephew, Benjamin. With this dynastic privilege at his base, he has spent the last 50 years climbing the political ladder in Maryland. But Cardin's crowning achievement came last year when he authored a bill that would have made it a felony to support a boycott of Israel, 
a bill that was such a profound assault on basic First Amendment freedoms that the ACLU instantly denounced it and multiple senators who had co-sponsored Cardin's bill, such as Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, announced that they were withdrawing their support. Despite all of this, or perhaps because of it, establishment Democrats wasted no time in mocking and denouncing Manning's bid to become the first ever trans woman in the Senate, instead quickly lining up in support behind the straight white male who has wielded power for decades. To demean Manning, many of these establishment Democrats invoked the primary tactic they now reflexively use against anyone they view as a political adversary. They depicted her as a tool of the Kremlin whose candidacy is really just a disguised plot engineered by Moscow. Leading the way in spreading this obviously deranged but acceptable in D.C. conspiracy theory was Neera Tandon, the president of the largest Democratic Party think tank in Washington. Last night, Tandon spread a viral tweet that strongly and Applied without even pretending to have a shred of evidence that the Kremlin had engineered Manning's candidacy as a punishment for Carding's hardline position on Russia. And that tweet reads, Senator Cardin authored and released a 200-page masterpiece on Russian influence in Western elections. Suddenly, he has a primary from Kremlin stooge Assange's WikiLeaks primary source, Chelsea Manning. The Kremlin plays the extreme left to swing elections. Remember that. But this is the climate in Washington. No conspiracy theory is too moronic, too demented, too self-evidently laughable to disqualify its advocates from being taken seriously, as long as it involves accusations that someone is a covert tool of the Kremlin. That's why the president of the leading Democratic think tank feels free to spread the slanderous trash. Why have so many establishment Democrats so quickly decided to back a white straight male politician steeped in privilege? while devoting themselves to opposing a candidate who would make history by becoming the first trans woman ever elected to the U.S. Senate in the process of inspiring trans youth around the world and helping to erode the stigma that has made them so vulnerable to discrimination and violence. One can certainly make an argument that the license they've granted themselves here to prioritize ideology and politics over identity is a reasonable one, but one wonders whether they intend to maintain a monopoly on this license or extend it to others. So. What Glenn Greenwald is doing here is brilliant. He is invoking identity politics and using identity politics in order to expose just how hypocritical neoliberal centrist Democrats are in their use of identity politics. So when we were opposed to Hillary Clinton, well, of course, it was because we were sexist. And when they realized that we weren't smitten by Kamala Harris like centrist Democrats were... Well, then they said we were not only sexist, but racist as well. So neoliberal Democrats have maintained consistently so over the past couple of years that you can't be opposed to someone based on ideology or policy if they are, in fact, a woman or a woman of color. Otherwise, you are a sexist or a racist Bernie bro. But here they are now backing an old straight white male who's privileged over a transgender woman. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Now, Chelsea Manning is a hero. There's no doubt about that. You can't question that. And if you do question that, think about how the world views Chelsea Manning. If someone in Saudi Arabia exposed their government's war crimes, we would view that individual as a hero. But instead, in the United States, she's viewed as a traitor. What she did did not put American military personnel at risk. Zero people died because of what she exposed. So, to not embrace Chelsea Manning is preposterous. Now look, 
I do have to be objective here and give credit where credit is due. It's because of Barack Obama that Chelsea Manning is able to run to begin with because he's the one that pardoned her, but it was under his watch that she was tortured by our government to begin with. So in the end, I do want to give Obama credit, but I can't give him too much credit because he was essentially fixing a problem that occurred under his watch. And his treatment of whistleblowers ultimately facilitated the mistreatment of Chelsea Manning. So look, Chelsea Manning is someone who I am thoroughly excited about. If there's anyone that I feel confident would represent our needs in the Senate, it's definitely Chelsea Manning. She gave up her own freedom. She knew that she would be locked up. But she still exposed those crimes anyway. That is courage. So I have no doubt she's going to represent us. So now I just hope that she really runs on a very progressive platform, Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage. But I think it's going to be the case because, I mean, if she's coming out and backing a universal basic income, that's a good sign of what's to come. So, I mean, this is really a bittersweet announcement because on one hand, I'm, I'm thoroughly ecstatic about Chelsea Manning running. But at the same time, this kind of killed my soul seeing the response. To see her just mocked relentlessly by conservatives and Democrats, it just, it really demonstrated how much more work we have to do to unbrainwash people in America. So in last week's episode, we briefly talked about the former sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, criminal convict Joe Arpaio, and how he's running for the United States Senate. Now, on last week's show... I noted how he doesn't really seem to have any real issue in mind that is propelling this campaign. He, he's not running on any platform in particular other than supporting Donald Trump. And I am now here to report a week later that he still seemingly has absolutely no clue why he's running for the Senate. Uh, but the question is, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I'll tell you. Um, First of all, I'm a big supporter of the president from day one, July 2015. Uh, I uh, endorsed him. I introduced him, and I said he would be the next president. I guess I was right on that. Uh, so I have a great respect for the president. And I, between you and I, I don't like the, uh, what's going on uh, with certain people going after him. He's done a great job, and uh, I want to do something to uh, help him and help the people of Arizona. So I had a long career, uh, 60 years serving my country, 56 years in law enforcement, joined the Army when the Korean War started. Right was a cop in D.C. I can go on and on. Believe me, he does go on and on and on until Chris Cuomo finally cut him off. But I mean, he let him just drone on way longer than he should have. So he states here, I want to do something to help him, meaning Donald Trump, and the people of Arizona. He wants to do something. He doesn't necessarily know what, but he knows it's going to be something good to help them. I mean... What's the point of your campaign, Joe? Why are you running? If you don't have any issue that is pulling on your heart that you just feel so passionate about, then why are you running? He knows that since this is a national campaign, it's going to get national press coverage. He can't just be overtly racist like he previously was. So he has to pretend as if, you know, he he has this equitable philosophy about the world and that he thinks everyone is equal and he, he would never target undocumented immigrants or Mexicans in general, even if he was convicted of doing just that. But now, since he can't just 
come out and overtly be racist, he doesn't really know what to run on because we know deep down Joe Arpaio is running because he is racist. And when he says he wants to support Donald Trump's agenda, well, without saying it, he's basically saying, I'm going to help him push for deportation. I'm going to help him get that wall approved. I mean, these are the things that Joe Arpaio would obviously fight for in the event he was elected to the United States Senate. So Joe Arpaio doesn't know why he's running. And not knowing why you want to run is a big enough reason to not run in the first place, but additionally, he has a criminal record. That's another reason why maybe you should sit this one out, Joe, but according to him, we're all wrong and he's completely innocent. Uh, you okay. went out in okay. some ignominious circumstances and now you're asking the people to give you another chance. I mean, have you changed? Do you no longer believe in profiling Latinos and stopping them just because well, of the color of their skin? Do you believe in no longer well, hurting well, people wrong. together that, and putting them that, in bad conditions? That is wrong. That is wrong. You're convicted of My it. guys do not raise, well, uh, no, convicted by a judge. Right. No jury who was very biased. I'm not going to go into his history. One day it's going to come out very soon. You were told so to stop judge, a discriminatory practice and you refused, Joe, and you got convicted I, I, of We contempt. did not refuse. No, no, no. We had the authority to do it by the federal government. They swore in all my deputies to be immigration officers, and we were doing our job in that period. Evidently, the judge uh, did not agree with it, even though the federal government laid the gui uh, guidelines how we would do it. But yeah. there's, that's a, one issue. Then he turns it over to another judge for contempt of court. Right. Now that judge refused to give me a jury trial. One day before, one day before early voting, Obama's Department of Justice holder and, and uh, mm -hmm. Loretta Lynch said they're going to charge me on a misdemeanor, mm -hmm. a misdemeanor, contempt of court, get the same time as barking dogs, and then during the uh, election, they charged me. Why didn't you just you stop do stopping that. people because they were Mexican? We never stopped people because they were Mexican. We stopped people because they were committing a crime. There was an established pattern of your pulling people over because they were that, Latino. That's how you got in court in the first place, Sheriff. That, 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 no, no. That's what the judge That's what the prosecutor decided, said. The That's what the prosecutor judge. said. They brought the case. This judge didn't just come knock on your door and tell you you were guilty. There was a prosecution involved because of a pattern of conduct. Now, either you believe in that kind of stuff, and that's what you want to represent yourself as to the voters in Arizona, or you don't. Which is it? Well, I'm telling you, you're bringing that up, okay? Yes, sir. And I'm telling you again, we're not guilty of that contempt of court, and that's why the president realized that and gave me a pardon, and I never asked for it. So when you got a judge is not going to go against the, uh, her uh, fellow judge on a contempt of court, and everybody in the courtroom knew that I was not guilty. Except of that, the prosecutor uh, and the judges. <laughs> <laughs> He's totally innocent, you guys. He only set up 10 City, bragged about it, and likened the conditions in his jails to that of concentration camps, but I mean, he's totally innocent. He totally wasn't just accused of racially profiling individuals in order to stop and then defy the judge's orders. I mean, this is ridiculous. Look, and one thing that's so unique about the Joe Arpaio case is that in the United States, we typically have a two-tier justice system. So if you are rich or powerful, typically, you're probably going to be able to get away with crimes that you want to commit.
Whereas normal everyday Americans, if they commit crimes, they get locked up, they get convicted of it. But Joe Arpaio is one of the few individuals with power that was actually prosecuted and convicted for crimes he committed. So that just goes to show you how much of a criminal and how corrupt he really is. And yes, I'm not just saying corrupt because I like to throw that word out there. He was also accused of corruption as well. So, I mean, the extent to which Joe Arpaio is unqualified can't be overstated. This guy is not just unqualified. He is certifiably insane. And you could really get the sense that there's something off about him in these interviews. But in spite of everything he did, all the crimes he committed, even if he was convicted by it, so by definition, he did something wrong, well, he claims that he has no regrets. No, I don't have a regrets. A few mistakes, yes. Everybody makes mistakes. Uh, was the birtherism a mistake? When you have a... Oh, now you're bringing that up. Well, why wouldn't well, I? I'm going to tell you something. Do you I think it doesn't matter? I, 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 you want to be I, a U.S. senator and you, you were part of a campaign yeah. to delegitimize a president of the United States? Matters, no? That's No, no. I started this because of fake document, a government document. I didn't care where the president came from. I didn't care at all. And we have the evidence. Nobody will talk about it. Nobody will look at it. And any time you want to come down or anybody will be glad to show you the evidence. And by the way, you're going to hear more about this fake So you believe that President Obama's birth certificate is a phony? No doubt about it. So there you have it. I mean, there's not really much that I have to say to convince you that this guy is... Something's not right about him, to put it nicely. But I actually want to switch gears because my question is, why are they even giving him a platform to defend himself to begin with when we all know that he's guilty? Now, I think the general answer to that question is that sunlight is probably the best disinfected. So if you put him in front of a camera, then people will realize just how crazy he is. But I don't think that's necessarily true because look at Donald Trump. Donald Trump was covered nonstop and he was covered because of how crazy he was. I mean, it was a spectacle. And yet, even if the media was giving Trump bad coverage overall, negative coverage with the exception of Fox News, they still unwittingly legitimized him. They made it seem as though he was a legitimate candidate because of the way they covered his campaign nonstop. And I'm worried that that same thing could happen here. Now, this didn't happen with Roy Moore. Roy Moore got a lot of national press coverage, but he still lost. But again, it was Roy Moore. I think that Joe Arpaio probably has a better chance of winning than Roy Moore because Roy Moore was a pedophile. But my question here in asking about the media's coverage of Joe Arpaio is why would you give someone like Joe Arpaio a platform but ignore people like Amy Valela, who's running for Congress in the 4th Congressional District of Nevada? Why would you ignore someone like Paula Jean Sorengen, who was a powerful opponent to Joe Manchin? Why would you not talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, even though she is running one of the strongest campaigns we've seen? Why are all of those progressive candidates getting ignored, but lunatics like Roy Moore and Joe Arpaio receiving pretty much nonstop coverage? It makes no sense to me. Now, I understand that, ironically, I'm kind of guilty of this as well, right? Because I'm talking about Joe Arpaio. His name was in the title of this video, but I think it's worth pointing out that in this country, part of the reason why we are in our current political predicament, part of the reason why the Overton window in the country shifted so far to the right is because the media, with their corporate agenda, they do provide coverage to these right-wing extremist candidates because they have that profit incentive. They don't really care about 
politics so much as they care about getting eyeballs to the screen and getting views and getting ratings. So candidates like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Paula Jean Swearingen, Amy Valela, they probably wouldn't generate the amount of um, attention as someone like Joe Arpaio. You know, it's a spectacle. It's entertaining. But I think that we really have to come together as a society and stop legitimizing candidates like Joe Arpaio. Stop putting them in the spotlight because even though we think we're showing just how crazy they are, people like what they have to say. You're only broadcasting their message to a bigger audience. Now again, ironically, I'm talking about him. I'm part of the problem here. But the difference between independent media and corporate media is that we actually have progressive candidates on the show. We've had Stephen Jaffe on the show, Sam Ronan, Amy Valela, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cori Bush. I mean, we've had people on the show that are actually legitimate candidates who are progressive, who can win, who have real substantive things to say about policy. Why can't the media do that too? It's why people are turning to independent media networks. So look, that's my thoughts. You know, um, of course, Joe Arpaio is not a legitimate candidate. He's a complete joke. And I hope that the media doesn't turn this into another spectacle like Donald Trump. Hopefully, you know, just the midterms in general with other candidates running will drown him out. But I'm not hopeful. I'm not hopeful at all. So as you all know, Donald Trump and the Republicans are currently in talks with Democrats to either revive DACA or pass the DREAM Act. Now, everyone in D.C. is scrambling because there is a midnight deadline approaching on Friday, and if they don't agree to something by then, the government shuts down. Now, there's a couple of different ways this could all play out. They could potentially agree to a temporary fix and basically postpone negotiations until March. They could also agree to the Republican Party's plan to pass the DREAM Act as well as funding for Donald Trump's border wall. Or they could agree to the Democrats' plan, which is a clean version of DACA or a clean version of the DREAM Act. Either way, time is running out, and if they don't act quickly, then the government's going to shut down and somebody is going to get blamed for that. Now, Bernie Sanders is making sure that if anyone gets blamed, it's going to be Donald Trump and the Republicans. And he penned an op-ed in the Washington Post saying just this, that if the government does in fact shut down, it's going to be Republicans and Donald Trump that are going to have to take the blame. And he has good reason to do this. I think this is an excellent strategy for him to be pursuing, as well as the Democrats to pursue. One, because as usual, the Republican Party's demands are completely unreasonable. And second of all, well, there's this. Build that wall. Now, the obstructionist Democrats would like us not to do it. But believe me, if we have to close down our government, we're building that wall. (laughs) We have to close down our government. We're building that wall. So if the government shuts down, we all know who the culprit is. You just saw it. Donald Trump, who months ago said he'll make sure he gets that border wall even if the government has to shut down. So Bernie Sanders went on the Senate floor and called on Donald Trump and the Republicans to support the passage of a clean version of the DREAM Act with no stipulations or any other policies attached to it like the border wall. And as he usually does, he holds Congress accountable and tells them to do what the overwhelming majority of the American people want. So I'm going to show you the phenomenal speech that Bernie Sanders made on the Senate floor, a clip from it. It's longer, so I'll link to that below. But I'm going to show you what Bernie Sanders said, and then 
In spite of what I think is a great strategy, I'm going to tell you what one journalist said about Bernie Sanders' strategy and why this journalist thinks Bernie Sanders is being unreasonable here. I rise today to speak on behalf of nearly 800,000 dreamers, young people who are brought to this country as children, who today are living in fear and uncertainty. As a result of the Trump administration's decision to end the DACA program, these young people are at risk of losing their legal status and, in fact, face deportation from the only home that most of them have ever known. And that home is the United States of America. This is one of the great moral issues of our time, and it is an issue that must be dealt with now as part of the budget negotiations. It cannot be kicked down the road any longer. We must pass the DREAM Act now as part of the current budget negotiations. Each day, the Congress does not act. 122 people lose their DACA protections, 851 people each and every week. This is a matter of urgency, and we have got to act accordingly. But I want to assure my Republican colleagues that not only is this the right thing to do from a moral perspective, from an economic perspective. It is also exactly what the American people want. Nobody here is asking anybody in the United States Senate to rise up and to be extraordinarily brave and courageous. Why don't you just do what the American people want us to do? No profiles in courage are needed now. Poll after poll have shown that the overwhelming majority of the American people want to provide legal status to the dreamers and to protect them from deportation. From a political perspective, this is not a difficult decision. I am, however, very concerned that President Trump is using the 800,000 dreamers as a bargaining chip to force the taxpayers of this country to pay for an $18 billion wall. An $18 billion wall. Now, some may remember that during his campaign for president, Donald Trump told the American people that it was the Mexican government that would be paying for the war. Well, it turns out that it didn't quite work out that way. And now it is the taxpayers of this country who are supposed to pay for a war. Mr. President, let me be as clear as I can be. We cannot and we must not hold the lives of 800,000 young dreamers hostage in order to fund a wall 
that the vast majority of the American people oppose. Now, he then brought out a poster, including a quote from Donald Trump, where Donald Trump basically states that he is willing to shut down the government in order to get that border wall. And Bernie Sanders did this so he can hold Donald Trump directly accountable in the event of a government shutdown. I mean, this is how you play politics. You use someone's words against them so that way if something happens, they take the blame for it. And Donald Trump, since he has a big mouth, he already preemptively took the blame for shutting down the government. It's because he wants this border wall. So I'm proud of Bernie Sanders for staying strong here. We need people who will advocate for dreamers and be relentless and not back down. However, one journalist, as I mentioned earlier, is angry because Bernie Sanders is not buckling. I'm not kidding about that. He is literally angry that Bernie Sanders is not compromising with Republicans here. Even though Donald Trump, just last week, seemed open to the idea of passing a clean DACA bill, even though Bernie Sanders basically backed Republicans into a corner, CNBC journalist Jake Novak argues that Bernie Sanders is wasting his political capital and hurting Democratic Party aims and his own legacy, essentially because he's refusing to compromise and not rolling over and dying like Democrats usually do. So he argues, Senator Bernie Sanders has never been the silent type. He's making noise again with a series of TV appearances and an op-ed this week preemptively blaming Republicans for a potential government shutdown. More than a year after his stunningly impressive Democratic presidential primary run, this is just the latest example of Sanders engaging in fiery rhetoric. But that's the problem. Democrats need Sanders to do more than rant, and he needs to do more than that as well if he wants a legitimate political future. With the passage of the tax reform bill, Republicans have proved they are a real threat, and Democrats can see verbal attacks alone aren't going to stop the Trump slash GOP legislative agenda. But unlike the tax bill, the current budget and immigration issues will require at least some Democratic votes to resolve, handing them a golden opportunity. If there ever was a time for Bernie to get involved and push for some real compromise, this is it. But so far, he's still all talk. Sanders was a no-show at that big publicly televised meeting at the White House Tuesday on the budget and immigration issues. So, after the Republican Party has backed themselves into a corner, after Donald Trump admitted that he's willing to shut down the government to make sure that his border wall is funded, this journalist thinks that now is a good time to compromise, to buckle, to roll over and die to the demands of the Republican Party. If we agreed to this as a political strategy, nothing would get done. It'd just be the Republicans getting every single thing that they want. So because Bernie Sanders refuses to agree to Donald Trump's unreasonable demands, and because he's holding strong, Bernie Sanders is the bad guy in this situation. I mean, if you, if you have the winning argument, if you're on the right side of history... You have no reason to compromise. Stand up and fight for what you believe in. And this is what I absolutely loathe about liberals and the Democratic Party. The minute Republicans indicate that they're going to play hardball, they just roll over and die. Oh, please, please, please don't, please don't push for this or that. We'll, we'll give you whatever you want. I mean, this happened with the Obamacare negotiations. Democrats were so terrified of Republicans that they didn't even propose single payer as an option. Instead, they started by moving the goalpost and compromising an already right-wing healthcare policy, and they initially introduced a public option, but they couldn't even hold strong on that. So we got a watered-down right-wing healthcare plan. I mean, this is what happens. Democrats have got to take a stand. If you believe in something, then fucking fight for it. 
What are you doing compromising? How could you possibly think that compromising and giving in to Donald Trump's extreme demand, to the demands of a proto-fascist right-wing extremist party is going to do anything to help out citizens. Dreamers don't need someone who just tepidly supports them and is going to be a mealy-mouthed liberal. We need people who's going to get out there and be a fire breather and advocate for them because their lives are at stake here. Imagine, just put yourself in their shoes. You don't know what your life is going to be like six months down the line. You could get deported. You have a job right now. You could end up in a country that you're completely unfamiliar with, that you didn't grow up in and be homeless. Your situation could change completely. Imagine having to look over your shoulders everywhere you go because there's a bunch of people that are questioning your status and whether or not you should or shouldn't be here. Imagine living like that. I couldn't. That would be a terrible life to live. So I'm sorry. There's no room for compromise. Pass a clean version of DACA or get blamed for it. But this author is encouraging Democrats and Bernie Sanders to employ the exact opposite strategy that they should be using. Democrats have always had the tendency to roll over and die, and Bernie Sanders isn't doing that. So the author is insisting here that Bernie Sanders isn't a serious politician. He's not a serious actor because he's unwilling to compromise. And also, Sanders doesn't seem the least bit interested in getting into actual governing. In fact, he still isn't even officially a member of the Democratic Party. Sanders did craft a bill calling for the federal government to negotiate prescription drug prices for the entire country like it currently does for Medicare, but the bill went nowhere and there's no evidence that Sanders made any effort to negotiate the plan with the White House. He has another bill to provide single-payer style health coverage for all Americans that has more than a dozen Democrat co-signers, but that bill isn't going anywhere. Proposing bills that have no chance of passing in a majority Republican Congress isn't the best way Bernie can use whatever political capital he earned from the election. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. Sanders has been in Congress since 1991, but has barely had a legislative impact in Washington during that 27-year period. Other than going through the grueling effort of running for president, it's a fair argument to say that Bernie remains a lot more bark than bite. Real political leaders have to make compromises. That stinks sometimes, but otherwise nothing gets done. What will Bernie choose? Sorry, Bernie, but since you're not willing to compromise with the unreasonable demands of Donald Trump and the Republican Party, even if you have them backed into a corner where they can get blamed for a government shutdown, you're not the real grown-up. According to this journalist, Bernie Sanders doesn't know how governing works, but I mean, what could Bernie Sanders possibly know about governing. They only call him the Amendment King, but I mean, he knows nothing apparently. He's done nothing in his 27 years in Congress, according to this biased journalist. The thing about negotiations is that you need to look at the bigger picture and what Republicans are demanding. Democrats have the argument that the American people agree with. So you don't have to negotiate with the right-wing extremist party's unreasonable demands if you had the American people on your side and if the party was already willing to take blame for a government shutdown. And guess what? Even CNN, a news organization that boasts about how neutral they are, published an article explaining how Democrats are, quote, letting Republicans fundamentally reframe the immigration debate. So when someone from CNN implies that Democrats are too weak, then certainly they're too weak. But this journalist is saying, well, they need to be even weaker. They need to compromise. They need to buckle and not hold strong and be even weaker. Now, he also implied here that Bernie Sanders 
bills like Medicare for All was a bad idea because, I mean, these bills have no chance of passing in a right-wing controlled Congress. But the reason why Bernie Sanders introduced this and why we cheerleaded him on when he introduced this was because introducing it now gives you the chance to put in the work to cultivate a massive coalition so that way when Democrats do take back Congress, if we can get enough progressives in there, a lot of the work for this bill will have already been done. So after reading this article, I get the impression that this journalist doesn't really know how governing works. He doesn't know the importance of putting in time to build coalitions and making sure that you hold strong. I mean, what message does that send to Bernie Sanders supporters or even Democratic Party voters if their party buckles at every chance they get? They're never, ever willing to hold strong. I mean, I remember back in 2010, before they ultimately decided to vote to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, there were so many times when they signaled that they were not going to hold strong and buckle. We need people to fight for us. If we elect them, they represent us. So why are you discouraging them from doing that? Why are you telling them to give in to the demands of a party that is unreasonable? I mean, it, it makes no sense to me. So I really hope that Bernie Sanders disregards this argument and does what he is continuing to do. Because to say that Bernie uh, should compromise or that Democrats should be even weaker, it's absurd to me. I, I can't even comprehend how someone could come to that conclusion. The University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore did something recently that demonstrates exactly how broken America's healthcare system really is. And um, it shows exactly why we need Medicare for all. So they treated and discharged a patient with nowhere to go. So since she didn't have anywhere to go, they dumped her off at a bus stop. And she was half naked. She had a medical gown on and they left her. So a man named Imamu Baraka filmed what happened. And um, I'm going to sh show you the video. It's, it's pretty disturbing. But I would encourage you to challenge yourself and watch it because we can't turn away at things that make us feel uncomfortable. We have to realize this is what's happening in the United States in 2018. So... This isn't the full clip, it's a portion of it, uh, but watch it and then we'll talk about it afterwards. Wait, so y'all just gonna leave this lady out here with no clothes on? So you all are just gonna leave this lady out here like this? So I'm assuming that you all are with the security department? Okay. Is there a supervisor available? I am So you all are okay with leaving that woman out there like that? She was Ladies and gentlemen, I'm at a local hospital where individuals have left a patient half naked on the city streets, and it's, it's about 30 degrees out here right now. And I am not sure um, why this is even happening. Uh, but we're gonna find out. Ma'am, are you okay? Are you okay? 
Huh? Are you unable to speak? Are you okay, ma'am? Do you need me to call the police? Why don't you go and sit down, ma'am? You don't look well. Come and sit down. Come and sit down. Ma'am, come and sit down. Ma'am, won't you come and sit down? Ma'am? 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 Come and sit down. Let me see. Let me get you some help. Come and sit down. That was incredibly difficult to watch, obviously. And if we had a Medicare for all healthcare system, that wouldn't have happened. Because... The reason why they presumably dumped her was because, well, she was treated at the emergency room and then afterwards they discharged her and realized she probably couldn't pay or didn't have insurance. So they couldn't keep her there because staying overnight, that's a, that costs a lot of money. So they dumped her. But in a system like Canada, where they have a single-payer healthcare system, they would have kept her until she was coherent, until she was in the right state of mind. To be left at a bus stop. And that video, mind you, goes on for several more minutes and it gets really disturbing. So she starts crying. Um, she begins grunting. I mean, you can just tell that she's really frustrated and she, she wasn't in the right state of mind to be on her own. And then you see that she didn't have anything on underneath that medical gown. Like her whole back was basically open. It's sickening. Things like this. You know, it's happened before. Thankfully, Umamu was there to capture this on video. But if you see the documentary Sicko by Michael Moore, there's security camera footage of hospitals dumping patients off once they've treated them and they have nowhere to go. So they just leave them. Patients stumbling around, not knowing really where they are, not fully coherent, not able to really make decisions for themselves yet. Yes, they might have been medically treated, but I mean, mentally... If you just undergo something that is, you know, a traumatizing medical procedure, then clearly you're going to need more care. But I mean, in America, hospitals, the medical industry, this is a business. They just want to treat patients and, you know, churn them out quickly, get them out. It's kind of like a restaurant. People come in, they order their food. You want to get them in and out as quickly as possible so you can see the, the next customer and make more money. This is how hospitals operate. And that's why... Our system is so fundamentally broken because hospitals and healthcare systems, there shouldn't be this profit incentive. If you have a healthcare system where profit is the overall goal, where hospitals prioritize making money over the treatment of patients, this is what happens. This is the outcome. Now, this video quickly went viral for obvious reasons because it's just appalling. I don't know how anyone can watch that and not feel something you know inside I, I was angry i was i was hurt by this video to know that this this is still happening to fellow americans in this country um so you know the hospital was basically forced to respond to it and the president uh his name is mohan suntha said this we really want to start by apologizing to the patient her family and the entire community that we serve for what occurred uh as a patient was leaving our organization 
Tuesday night here at the Midtown campus. We believe firmly that we provided appropriate medical care to a patient who came to us in need. But where we absolutely failed and where we own that failure is in the demonstration of basic humanity and compassion as a patient was being discharged from our organization after having uh, received that care. As a physician who has spent my entire professional career as part of the University of Maryland health system, uh, I share the community's shock and anger at what occurred. And as leaders in this organization, we own that responsibility to ensure that as uh, we investigate the breakdowns that occurred, that again, consistent with a fundamental tenet of our leadership approach, that we hold each other accountable for the actions that occurred Tuesday night. Again, uh, I want to be clear that uh, what was witnessed on that video uh, was not a, uh, a part of the patient's medical care that was delivered while they were within the institution. So we are, in fact, uh, conducting an in-depth analysis of what occurred. Uh, we are trying to understand the points of failure that led to what was witnessed uh, on that video. We are holding in individuals who made decisions accountable for those decisions, and that is throughout uh, our organization. So there you have it. Um, they're denying that they provided her with inadequate care, and certainly we don't know if that's the case. I believe that they thought that she was clear, but I mean, one thing that's evident is that she clearly shouldn't have been released. She wasn't in the right state of mind. So even if they gave her the treatment that she needed, something wasn't right there. This is a young woman. She shouldn't be acting like she doesn't know where she is. If you know, She wouldn't be acting like that if something weren't seriously wrong still. Or maybe she needed a few extra days to recover. But again, the goal is to just treat them and get them out as soon as possible. And if they don't have anywhere to go, sometimes this is what happens. So we've got perhaps the least shocking story in the history of news covered on the Humanist Report here today. Uh, because to no one's surprise, the Dakota Access Pipeline leaked multiple times. And Eileen Brown of The Intercept actually has a summary of just how frequently this pipeline has leaked since it's been fully operational. So she explains that Dakota Access Pipeline leaked at least five times in 2017. The biggest was a 168-gallon leak near Dapple's Endpoint in Pocota, Illinois, on April 23rd. According to federal regulators, no wildlife was impacted, although soil was contaminated, requiring remediation. Dapple went into operation on June 1st along with its under-the-radar sister project, the Energy Transfer Crude Oil Pipeline, a natural gas pipeline converted to carry crude. Together, the two make up the Bakken pipeline systems. ETCO leaked at least three times in 2017. Most of the Bakken system leaks were considered minor by state and federal monitors. According to regulators, water was not impacted in any of the cases. The only spill considered significant by the Federal Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, or PHMSA, 
was a 4,998-gallon leak, the ETCO pipeline in Dyersburg, Tennessee, on June 19th. Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation spokesman Kim Shofinsky told The Intercept that reporting the spill to the agency was not required because it was contained within the pumping station where it occurred. The series of spills in the pipeline's first months of operation underline a fact that regulators and industry insiders know well. Pipelines leak. Yeah, so uh, is anyone shocked by this at all? And anytime there's a leak, they come out and assure us, oh, you know, this wasn't that bad. It was contained. No wildlife was killed. You know, some soil was contaminated. But overall, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, but do you understand why we have a problem, though? It's continuously leaking. If this is a new pipeline, one would think logically that it would last longer and we wouldn't see leaks this frequently Especially since it just became operational. Maybe down the road, you know, 10 years, 20 years later, these leaks become more frequent. But this is a brand new pipeline just installed last year. And it's already leaking this much. So even if you want to reassure us time and again that these leaks are contained, it's only a matter of time before this pipeline leaks or one of these two pipelines in the Bakken system leaks and contaminates drinking water. Then what are you going to do? You keep assuring us that these oil pipelines are the safest way to transmit oil. And we're supposed to just accept that and say, oh, okay, well, since it's the safest way to transport oil, I guess, you know, we just have to shut up and take it. No, the answer is to get off of our oil dependency altogether. We need a green revolution because that is where the world economy is headed and, I mean, at this point, the United States is going to be the last to show up to that party. And not only that, we're still giving huge subsidies to the oil and gas industry. So we are paying them, giving them tax breaks to ruin the planet, to ruin our country, to poison our drinking water. We're not subsidizing green technology. We're still subsidizing big oil because, surprise, surprise, they contribute to the campaigns of not just national politicians, but state and local politicians. And clearly, in the case of the Dakota Access Pipeline, it was very clear that Energy Transfer Partners, which is the company that constructed the Dakota Access Pipeline, has bought off a lot of politicians in the state of North Dakota. And this is this is what happens, is local corruption. And just simply buying off politicians is just the tip of the iceberg. Because when you look at the overall situation and the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, this, this company, Energy Transfer Partners, literally paid a militia to antagonize protesters who were opposed to this pipeline because they didn't want their water poisoned and also because it violated the sovereignty of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. But this company is so disgusting that they literally had militants with attack dogs treat these protesters like terrorists. Literally, they used counter-terrorist tactics against peaceful protesters that would show up in large crowds to pray for example, they treated those individuals like terrorists. They used tear gas. They shot them with cold water in freezing weather. So I can't not be outraged anytime this pipeline leaks. We told you it was going to leak and we were proven right immediately. And now you're still maintaining that, well, you know, these leaks are contained and whatnot. If there is a massive leak... I should say when there's a massive leak and it inevitably does a lot of environmental and ecological damage and contaminates water, this company should be completely put out of business. They should no longer exist, but that doesn't happen in America. We don't we don't hold 
corporations accountable in the same way that we hold the protesters against those corporations accountable. We don't do that. We let them get away with everything. Former Labor Secretary Tom Perez has now been the DNC chairman for almost a year, and he was tasked with repairing the DNC's horrible image. I mean, this is an organization that is corrupt to the core, and he was the individual that was supposed to get in there and restore our trust and faith in the DNC. But the problem is that even the way he got into the race was problematic and showed the contempt the Democratic Party establishment had and still does have for progressives. So Keith Ellison announced that he would be running to be the DNC chairman early on, and he was gaining a lot of momentum. He got endorsements from the likes of Chuck Schumer, even establishment figures. So he looked to be the individual that would have healed the wounds in the party, or at least certainly had a better chance of doing so. But... President Obama pushed Tom Perez in that race. We don't even know if Tom Perez wanted to be the DNC chairman, and he ended up winning. So, you have to understand that there's a lot of bad blood there just because of the way he became the DNC chairman. But now, after a year, I do think it is important to kind of reflect on everything he's done. And unfortunately for Tom Perez, it's been a terrible job, and he has done nothing to restore our faith in that corrupt institution. Now, in an article for Politico, he was actually pretty open about his expectations when he first got there. So, Edward Isaac Dovier explains, One year into Tom Perez's project to save the Democratic National Committee from complete collapse, officials are beginning to dig out of the hole left by Debbie Wasserman Schultz's mismanagement, Barack Obama's indifference, alleged Russian hacking, and the bitter rivalry between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders capped by accusations of election rigging. But going into a midterm election that should be the Democrats to lose, the DNC is still struggling to bring its factions together and assert itself. Throw into the mix powerful super PACs, the much better funded party committees focused on Congress and governors, and more independent voters than ever, and many wonder whether the DNC has a place at all anymore. I knew it was a turnaround job when I ran, but I undeniably underestimated the depth of the turnaround job. We had to rebuild almost every facet of the organization, and equally importantly, we had to rebuild trust, Perez said in a recent interview at party headquarters. Not just people who had invested in the DNC, but others. They just felt the party had let them down. But there are glimpses of progress and a sense of tempered optimism. Most of the DNC's officers and members have co less behind Perez. Fundraising, while still trailing far behind the Republican National Committee, is on uptick, boosted by a major donor program Perez has nurtured and checks that picked up after Democrats won high-profile races last fall in Virginia and Alabama. State party chairs say they're being listened to again, and a tech operation that had atrophied to the point of near collapse under the previous leadership is being rebuilt. So I'm glad that Tom Perez here is admitting that he underestimated the depth of just how big of a turnaround job this would be. But the fact that he underestimated it shows just how out of touch he really is. I mean, this party was basically in ruin because of Debbie Wasserman Schultz and her leadership, and because of Obama basically robbing the DNC and Hillary Clinton taking control of the DNC. I mean, this was an organization that was on the verge of collapse, and to even take a risk with someone like 
Tom Perez, who was a really controversial figure in a party that is divided, I thought that was idiotic for DNC members, but it says here that most of them coalesced around Perez. Well, no shit, they voted for him. <laughs> so that means nothing. What matters is if the base is going to coalesce around Tom Perez. And certainly that has not been the case. We reject him because guess what he just did months ago? He purged progressive representatives within the DNC. He kicked out Bab Cyperstein. He kicked out Ray Buckley, James Zogby. These are progressives who we feel confident would represent our interests within the DNC. Kicked him out. Replaced him with stooges for the establishment. How are you going to build trust that way, Tom? You can't. You just can't do it. And I think that that task might be impossible. The DNC name is so tarnished, it may be irreparable. But that's, that's fine. Because, yes, there are organizations that have popped up. Our revolution. Organizations that do fund progressive candidates. Brand new Congress. So... Yes, the DNC is still important in providing funding to state parties and uh, governor races and whatnot, uh, gubernatorial races, that is. But this is, I mean, to, to repair the image of the DNC, it seems impossible. It's like polishing a turd and convincing us that that's not a turd anymore. I mean, it's, it's, it's seemingly impossible. Now, Tom Perez responded directly to the fundraising woes, which I think is a result of his incompetence and the party's incompetence. And this is what he has to say about that. Press said the DNC's fundraising woes are overblown, noting that it raised more in the second half of 2017 than in the same period in 2015 or 2013 without an incumbent president to help. Obama did just one DNC fundraising event last year, but has plans to do several more in the months ahead. Downplaying the importance of the GOP's money advantage, Perez noted that the RNC outraised the DNC by about $30 million in 2005 ahead of the 2006 Democratic wave election. If you want to write a story that says RNC outraises DNC, that is the quintessential dog bites man story and has been for some time. They've got a lot more wealthy people, Perez said. Am I content with that? Absolutely not. We have a size 12 vision that can enable us to win everywhere, and we currently have a size 9 budget. So that, to me, was really telling. Because we have to look at the language he's using here. So um, he says that the Republican Party has a lot more wealthy people, um, and he's not content with that, and he wants to increase their budget as well. And he's done a lot of things to reach out to donors. And when we talk about him reaching out to donors, we're not talking about you and I, the people who donate $27 at a time. We're talking about the big boys. So he wants the party to be more entrenched because he believes that money is what will make the Democratic Party electorally viable again. When that's such an antiquated way of looking at the world because Bernie Sanders showed that you can be successful if you don't take corporate money. Now, what's a sure way to regain trust of progressives? You don't take corporate money anymore. Now, thankfully, they did end up banning, banning lobbyist contributions. This was an amendment that was voted on by uh, and introduced by Christine Pelosi, who surprisingly is Nancy Pelosi's daughter, but she's uh, seemingly a lot more progressive than her mother. Uh, and yeah, they, they voted on this, so that's good. But at the same time, he's trying to draw in donors that are big, that can fund the party, that can up their budget. And that's problematic because you're telling us, you're, you're tacitly admitting that you don't want the party to rely exclusively on the grassroots. You want to make sure that big donors uh, still have a say. And the good news is that Keith Ellison, even though he's very flawed, 
he seems to be pushing for more grassroots funding and more grassroots uh, strategic and electoral methods, generally speaking, which is a good thing, but I mean, he's only the deputy DNC chairman. The buck stops with Tom Perez, but the good news is that a lot of people now are realizing that there's really no value in donating to these gigantic organizations like the DNC or the RNC. If you support a candidate, just donate directly to that candidate. Because if you donate to the DNC, they're taking your money and they're divvying it up between multiple candidates and whatnot. And that's fine if you if you support that type of organization. There are organizations that do this, like Brand New Congress, Justice Democrats and whatnot. But, I mean, the point is if you support someone, you know exactly where that money goes if you just contribute directly. Which is why so many politicians who are running for Congress, who are actually progressive, are getting a lot of $27 donations. It's symbolic. It shows that... Their campaigns are fueled by the people. And if you actually have a message that's inspirational, people will donate to you. Amy Valela introduced her campaign on the Humanist Report, running to represent the 4th Congressional District of Nevada. She raised over $100,000 last year. We can do this without corporate money. Tom Perez is just late in understanding that. But look, in the end, to reflect on Tom Perez and his first year as DNC chairman... There have been many times where I was puzzled as to why he didn't step down. Everything he says seems to piss off progressives more because he clearly has contempt for progressives. Everything he does, every, every time he takes a step, he steps on a political landmine that lands himself in more hot water. He just is clueless. He doesn't get it. He doesn't represent the people. And he's from an administration that pretended to represent the people, Barack Obama, but ultimately represented the big banks, elites. So Tom Perez, I mean, I think that at this point, I have zero faith in him, none whatsoever. But I think that relying on the DNC to change, you know, we're going to be waiting for a really long time as progressives if we wait on that. So the point is that if you support a candidate, donate to that candidate, because that's really the best way, I think, to spend your money. And certainly, I would encourage you to give whatever you can, a dollar, two dollars, ten dollars, you know, whatever helps that candidate get elected. Because, yes, nobody, you know, in saying that we don't want large, multi-billion dollar organizations and multinational corporations donating to politicians, we're not saying that money is not necessary in campaigns. Because currently, in our current system, money is essential to win. But we are saying that you can do it without being corrupt, without being beholden to the big donors that just want to rig the economy against the working and middle classes. You don't have to do that. Bernie Sanders proved that. He led the way, and now progressive candidates across the country are further reinforcing that point. Amy Valela and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Sarah Smith, Cori Bush, uh, Paula Jean Swearingen, I can go on and on. So, um, yeah, Tom Perez has been a disaster, but at this point... Uh, it's not surprising to any of us. <laughs> so anytime a government agency votes on regulatory changes, especially sweeping regulatory changes, Congress has 60 days to basically nullify that vote using their authority under the Congressional Review Act. Now, last week we talked about this and how 40 senators decided to co-sponsor a bill that would in fact nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality on December 14th. So we focused on Democrats, and I am now happy to report that every single Democrat in the Senate 
is now on board because of you, because of you making those calls, because of your activism, because of the continued pressure that you are putting on the party. You got them to buckle, and now every single Democrat in the Senate is supporting a bill that would nullify the FCC's vote. Now, all we need now is just one more Republican, and guess what? That vote is nullified, at least in the Senate. But to get to the story itself, first of all, Brian Fung of the Chicago Tribune reports 50 Senate lawmakers have endorsed a legislative measure to override the Federal Communications Commission's recent decision to deregulate the broadband industry, top Democrats said Monday. The tally leaves supporters just one vote shy of the 51 required to pass a Senate resolution of disapproval in a legislative gambit aimed at restoring the agency's net neutrality rules. The resolution aims to overturn the FCC's decision and prohibit the agency from passing similar measures in the future. It has the support of all 49 Democratic senators, as well as one Republican, Senator Susan Collins of Maine. To win passage of the resolution, its supporters must recruit one more Republican member to their ranks, but the measure must survive the Republican-majority House and be signed by President Donald Trump to take effect. After an independent agency makes a decision, such as the FCC's net neutrality deregulation, federal lawmakers have a window of 60 legislative days to reverse the move under the Congressional Review Act. As of last Tuesday, 40 senators had signed onto the resolution to challenge the FCC under the act. Since then, another 10 have joined the effort. So at this point, they're going to vote on this. That's a sure bet. They're going to vote on this. And Mike Pence at this point would cast the tie-breaking vote if it is in fact 50-50. Now, we all know what Mike Pence is going to do. He's probably going to vote against it, which means it would die in the Senate. But ideally, what we want to happen is for this to pass in the Senate so it moves on to the House and generates a lot of press coverage. And if it actually does get to Donald Trump's desk, even if he vetoes it, that still garners a tremendous amount of, of press coverage. It makes Donald Trump take a position on this because up until this point, he's been silent on the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. I mean, he signaled to Ajit Pai that he's okay with whatever, but he hasn't taken a strong stance, stance, which is what a president should do in this situation. So here's what we have to do now. Since we need just one more Republican, we need someone who's on the fence, someone who is easily swayable. And even though Lisa Murkowski is a Republican senator from Alaska that came out against the FCC's reclassification of the internet as a utility under Title II in 2015, well, back in December, her office actually told the Daily News Miner that they were undecided as to whether or not she would support Ajit Pai's vote. Now, she said this on December 2nd. He then went on, as you all know, to vote to repeal net neutrality on the 14th of December. So we don't have any more updates. So as far as we know, Lisa Murkowski is still undecided. She's someone who we might be able to persuade. So we have to call her and let her know what's at stake. This is something that is incredibly unpopular, not just among Democrats, but your own party, Lisa. So I'm going to give you all of her office numbers. I think we can't just call her DC office. We have to make sure that we make the biggest impact possible. And if we all call different offices, I think collectively this will get her attention. So her DC office number is 202-224-6665. Her Saldatna number is 907-262-4220. 
Her Ketchikan number is 907-225-6880. Her Juno office number is 907-586-7277. And her Anchorage office number is 907-271-3735. So I'm going to call hopefully a couple of these depending on how much time I have. But certainly I'll call her DC office number. And I'm going to try to be brief and as concise as possible, but no promises. Hello, this is Senator Lisa Murkowski. Thank you for your call. For information about my office locations and hours of operation, please press 1. Know that I appreciate that you're taking the time to share your thoughts with me on the issues that are important to you. If you're an Alaska resident and would like a response to your concerns, please leave your name, address, and phone number. Please press 2 for this option. You can also leave me an email on my website at www. I'm just going to press 2. Thank you for calling our Washington, D.C. office. We appreciate you sharing your comments. Please leave a message. Hi, I'm just calling to encourage Senator Murkowski to sign on to the Congressional Review Act to nullify the FCC's vote to repeal net neutrality on December 14th. So far, all 50 Democrats have signed on to this bill. And uh, her colleague, Susan Collins, also signed on to this. Now, I know that she was undecided, but this is an issue that the overwhelming majority of the American people want Lisa Murkowski to get on board with. A majority of Republicans do not support the FCC's repeal of net neutrality, so Lisa Murkowski can represent her constituents and the people of America well if she signs on to the Congressional Review Act to nullify the FCC's vote. So please do this. Thank you. Okay, I think I'll call Juno now. Senator Lisa Murkowski's office, how may I help you? Hi, I just wanted to call to encourage Senator Murkowski to co-sponsor the Congressional Review Act bill in the Senate that would nullify the FCC's vote to repeal net neutrality. Okay. Um, this is something that had, has already garnered 50 co-sponsors, including one Republican, Susan Collins of Maine, and a majority of Republicans are against this. So I'm hoping that the senator would take the correct um, approach to this and do the right thing. Okay, is that all your message for the senator? That's it. Okay, I will push that forward. Perfect, thank you so much. Yep, have a great day. You too. Thanks. Okay, so that was Anchorage. Wait. Okay, that was Anchorage. I don't know if I said I was going to call Juno, but I'm going to call Juno now. Contacting the Juno District Office of Senator Lisa Murkowski and Senator Dan Sullivan. Sorry to have missed your call. Please leave your name and telephone number, and I will call you back as soon as possible. If you'd like to leave an opinion message for the senators, you can uh, do so here, and please leave your name and your mailing address along with your message, or you can go to the website at www.murkowski.senate.gov and www.sullivan.senate.gov. Thank you very much. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, simply hang up or press pound for further options. 
Hi, I'm just calling to encourage Senator Lisa Murkowski and also Dan Sullivan to sign on to the bill in the Senate that would use the authority granted to them under the Congressional Review Act to nullify the FCC's recent vote to repeal Title II net neutrality protections. I know that Senator Lisa Murkowski, at least, was undecided before the FCC made this vote, and this is something that we would greatly appreciate if she got on board with because the overwhelming majority of American citizens, including Republicans, do not support what the FCC just did. Uh, this bill already has 51 co-sponsors, 50 Democrats, and one Republican, her colleague, uh, Susan Collins. So I would highly encourage and appreciate if Lisa Murkowski represented us um, and signed on to this bill to make sure that it passes and goes on to the House. Thank you so much. Um, so yeah, if, if you have time, call every single office from her. Um, I really feel as though she is the one person who maybe we can bring on to our side. But if you think someone's better, call them as well. Uh, we need all hands on deck and we need everyone to get involved. And again, if we fail with this, it's going to go on through the courts. But let's do everything in our power to make sure that we save net neutrality. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the episode and listened to me rant for that long, I mean... You're awesome. <laughs> I commend you. Um, and as usual, before we go, I want to send a huge thank you to all of our Patreon and uh, PayPal contributors. You guys are uh, so generous and you help the show to not just survive, but thrive as well. So thank you all so much. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. I'll see you all next week.